Introducing the SND Podcast channel, your one-stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We can be reached on all social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, a beauty production presents... The most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast. I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And Jose, we are back after the Super Bowl has ended with, surprise, the Patriots winning the Super Bowl. The team that's always been there consistently time in, time again. Tom Brady picking up his sixth Super Bowl win, and just insane to think about sits as the new number for him. Um, so let's just start it out there. First take from Brady and Belichick picking up their Super Bowl win. Your thoughts? Well, it, it, it's funny because in the last podcast we both chose the Patriots, and you know our history this year of being of choosing the same team has not been great. I, I'm pretty sure if you look at our win loss record. Um, the teams that we both have agreed on winning their games have not always won. But we both felt co- very comfortable taking the Patriots. Um, a lot of people call it a boring game. I'm sure we'll get to that in a second. But that's what happens when defense shows up. Um, you know, both teams had a great defensive stand. They held points off the board for the entire halftime, uh, the first half at least. But, you know, when it's all said and done, the Patriots do win again, like you said. And it's funny because last year, when we did our podcast, I'm pretty sure we talked about the Super Bowl and we talked about how does this make Brady the goat? Is is Brady and Belichick the you know the best there is now? And we pretty much agreed that they're it that they are. So you know, winning more championships it doesn't cement their legacy even further. Not really. To me, they're already the best duo. To me, Belichick is one of the best coaches in the history. Brady's already one of the best quarterbacks in history. So really, anything they add is just icing on the cake. And really, anything that they do from now on is just separating the gap further. You know, it's it, it's it they're they're raising the bar for let's say someone like Patrick Mahomes to look at in the future. Now, if Patrick Mahomes wants to call himself the best QB, now he has to go out there and win five or six championships as opposed to winning, you know, if the bar was three or four before. So really all Brady and Belichick are doing at this point is just they keep setting that bar even higher to make sure no one gets or no one is able to pass them in the future if anybody even gets that close. But really, it's amazing, Nick, because like you said, six Super Bowls now, they tie the Steelers, I believe, with the most in franchise history. And when you look at it, all six have been won with Tom Brady, which means Tom Brady has the same amount of Super Bowls as an entire franchise in the Pittsburgh Steelers. That, to me, is when it gets really crazy. Because we look at the Patriots as a dynasty, but the Patriots won all six titles with Brady and Belichick. So this dynasty didn't really start until, what, 2001 was the first year they won, I believe, Nick? Maybe you can correct me on that if I'm wrong. But they didn't. the Patriots didn't win a championship until those two got together. So it's impressive to me that in the last you know century, starting dating back from the year 2000, this is where the Patriots did their damage. I mean, it's insane. I mean, we're talking about, you know, in a very short time, and it's right 2019, you know, over the past 19 years, the Patriots have really dominated this century so far in the beginning of it and, and who knows how long does he keep going because you look at Brady and honestly the his age is not slowing him down 
Brady looks phenomenal for a 40-something-year-old quarterback, and he has no plans on retiring. I don't think Belichick has any plans on retiring. The AFC East is still going to be a little weak, in my opinion. Do I expect the Bills to get better and for the Jets to get better? Yeah, sure, but I don't know how fast. And when you look at it, the Patriots still have a clear shot to win the AFC East. They still have a clear shot to be the better team in the a- in the AFC in general. So what's you know who's to say that we won't see another championship or a couple more before it's all said and done? Yeah, and one of the it's never should have been a debate on he's got to win this Super Bowl be considered the greatest player of all time because he was already in in my eyes and I think. In everyone's eyes, he should have been considered the greatest player of all time. Uh, I don't think now Sitz should be deemed the uh, the correct number, whereas we see Michael Jordan as Sitz, Tom Brady. No, it, the number is not what should be always considered. That matters getting there, showing the consistency, but also having all the stats in the world, which is Tom Brady at the end of the day, makes you the greatest player of all time. Uh, like you said... There, there might not be a, a stopping to the Patriots because of how good the Patriots are time and time again. Uh, they always beat up on their division. Uh, it's it's down to the point where we think every team in that division is just always god-awful when it's really just, no, the Patriots are just a much better team and they make everybody else look god-awful in that division. Uh you know, I was reading today how much preparation goes into the game for Bill Belichick. And he wanted to know if the roof was going to be closed or opened for kickoff. The roof was going to be closed for the entire game. It was just when the planes were going overview on the stadium and that was over. Was the kickoff going to have the roof open or not? And he's trying to find this all out from the the head ref. He's trying to get all of his information down. And then when he finds that, he goes straight to his special teams coordinator. And he's he's game planning just for the kickoff in case the roof will be open. That that's the preparation he's putting into everything. Not that the roof was ever going to play a factor. Not that wind was going to play a factor at all in this game. But if it could play the smallest factor on just the kickoff, he wanted to know about it. It it, it is amazing. They hold the Rams to three points, and I I am going to get on that boring factor because I don't think the game was boring. Uh, I am going to ask you that in a moment, though. This was one of the best defensive games we've seen in a while. And I think on a standpoint as far as the Patriots have played, this is one of the best defensive teams that they have shown that they've had. On top of that, how well coached were the Patriots for this game when you consider they holding the Rams, the number one offense in the league, to just three points. The first time a Sean McVay coach team of the Rams were held to just three points in that game. I think it should speak extremely high on the Patriots for this game. Uh, everything about it was very tough because of the fact that one small play could change the game completely because of how close this game was. Uh, I certainly enjoyed it, uh, but Jose, help me out here. Did this seem like a boring game to you? So, yes and no. I mean, 
to what we're used to. I mean, yeah, from what we're used to, yes. And I, I, I'll put it this way. Uh, it, it's funny. I'm going to mention my mom on this one. My mom was like, oh, you know, but I like when, like, they're running back and forth and the score is going up. And she doesn't watch, you know, she's not a crazy football fan. So that's as far as it goes in terms of her analysis, okay? But, you know, it's true. I think a lot of fans are expecting, oh, Super Bowl Sunday, you know, it's going to be guns blazing, you know, high offense. You know, people expected that Rams and Chiefs game from that Monday night game earlier in the year. Remember when it was 50-something to 50, what you know, whatever the score was? People expect that for the Super Bowl because it's supposed to be the biggest game of the year. It's supposed to be high-octane offense. You know, it's supposed to be you're pulling out all the stops to win. But, so yes, it was boring in, in terms of what we're used to. And, the, you know, there wasn't a lot of, you know, critical plays in the game. But what you have to look at it from a football standpoint was that this was a great defensive football game. You're talking about one of the best defenses in all the NFL in the Los Angeles Rams. I'm sorry, did you expect the Rams to go out there and give up 30 points, 40 points when they haven't almost all year? I mean, this is one of the best defenses in the NFL. It's the top five defenses in the NFL. The Patriots have had a lot of criticism about their defense all year long. But when the playoffs started, the defense stepped up its game. And this has looked like a completely different defense throughout the playoffs. And you got to tip your hat to the Patriots. They shut down one of the top offenses in the Los Angeles Rams. I mean, I read that, you know, you read earlier that how many points were the uh, were the Rams averaging in, in this season? Like 28 point something points. I thought and yet it was they were, higher than that. It might be higher. It was higher. in like it the 30s. They were the yeah, number one I, team. And they were held to three points. They were held to three points. That's insane. It's, it's So, unfortunately, it's going to get the bad rep of it was a boring football game. And, yes, it was boring in terms of what we're used to because a lot of people like offense. But this was a great defensive football game. And that, to me, is why I'm not going to call it boring because guess what? Sometimes great defense, yeah, it's boring. Just like in baseball. I love a pitcher's duel. I'm sure you love a pitcher's duel too. But – for about 75% of the audience, pitchers' duels are boring. Why? Because there's not as much as, you know, excitement and offense and stuff like that. So, yes, this Super Bowl will get a bad rep for being boring. But for, for like, the real fans who really enjoy a good defensive football game and who can understand that this is what happens when two great defenses go against each other, it's not boring for us. But I can understand why people would call it boring. The only way I would describe it as boring is for a party game it's boring and the Super Bowl has all the parties in the world to it all millions of people watching and it's a huge party game it's a huge drinking night it's that huge excuse night to eat some not so healthy food at times uh and for a party game, it can you you want a little bit more as far as touchdowns go, especially if your team isn't playing in the Super Bowl to begin with. Uh, but if you had to ask me, if you're taking a game and it's going to be a three point game or tied throughout the entire game. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Or a one-possession game throughout the entire football game. How do you not take that? How, how do you not enjoy that? It's going to keep you on the edge of your seat for the entire game. So I can't see that as a, a description of boring. Uh, 
So no, I I, I think that's a terrible way to put it. Uh, it obviously didn't have the high scoring that the Patriots Eagles featured, uh, the remarkable finish that the Patriots Falcons finished, uh, a memorable catch that we're used to in a lot of Super Bowls. Uh, we didn't see that as much in this one. What we saw was phenomenal defense, a ground game between punting. Uh, put to the test completely of two quarterbacks. One, a pure veteran. The other, a young player. And the veteran came on top. The veteran with experience in these situations. One, a young head coach. The other, a veteran coach. And the veteran coach came on top. The experience being there. I mean, it has everything to the point of describing this game. And it featured legacy winning. But future is still to come with the Rams. Because I don't think anyone's counting the Rams out at any point going into this next season. One thing, though, I will question about the Rams is, you know, Sean McVay, the offense, it, it was completely flat. It was completely predictable. But... It also looked like a player completely disappeared these last couple weeks, and that's Todd Gurley. I mean, Jose, you have pretty much the top offensive guy on your team throughout the entire season, and only the second time he touches the ball, you're six minutes left to go in the first half. In the playoffs, C.J. Anderson practically had the same amount of touches as Todd Gurley. I mean, did that make sense to you at all of how little Todd Gurley saw the football field during the Super Bowl? No, honestly, it didn't. And you touched upon something. You said no one expects the Rams to go away. And that's true. You know, I fully expect the Rams to be back in the mix next year. I fully expect for the Rams to be back in the playoffs. But this was embarrassing. There's no other word for it. I mean... You're the best offense in the NFL all year. You have a good young quarterback. You have a probably, in my opinion, the best running back in the NFL right now. You have good wide receivers. Why couldn't you score more than three points? Again, tip your cap to the Patriots defense, but this was embarrassing. And this didn't look like the Rams team that played all year. Where was the creative plays? Where were the smart calls by Sean McVay? Why was everything so basic? And like you said, why is Gurley not getting any of the carries? I mean, I understand that you might think the opposing defense might be like, well, they're going to run it. Let's change it up a little bit. Let's run more than we should. But the game plan is run with Gurley and then pass with Goff later on. Don't shy away from that. Honestly, it doesn't make any sense to me. And no disrespect to C.J. Anderson. I know you hate his guts for some reason, Nick. <laughs> Not sure why. But, I mean, maybe he did you wrong in fantasy one year. But, point no, is... No, 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 no. I know not to draft him. <laughs> you, I, I don't know what the beef is. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what the beef is with C.J. Anderson and, and Nick Sarasso. But, 
there's, there's just this ongoing beef between the two that I just even I can't describe. Point is, though, is that you tip your cap to C.J. Anderson for at least getting the offense going when they didn't give it to Todd Gurley. But to me, there's no excuse why Gurley should not have the ball in his hand, why he shouldn't be ha- – when he shouldn't have been – he should have been given the ball more. And the only reason why he shouldn't be getting the ball is because he's hurt. So what is it? Because now they're saying that Gurley was healthy. But to me, I can't believe you that Gurley was fully healthy and yet he was not given the ball more than he did, than he was. To me, it just doesn't add up. So it's either Gurley was hurt or something else was going on because there's no excuse why Todd Gurley shouldn't get the ball. When the Rams come out and say he's not injured and he's perfectly healthy, that that's when a reporter, especially a Rams reporter, should have came up and just smacked one of them. <laughs> and, and just... That should have just been the complete fan base right there. One hit, we'll call it even, because I don't have an answer to that play. I don't have an answer at all to that. It made no sense to me how Todd Gurley's not on the field. And if he wasn't healthy, okay. But they all say he's healthy. Why is he not on the field? It, it, that, to me, is mind-boggling. Uh, on top of that, though, the offensive genius... The offensive guru, the offensive god that Sean McVay is, that the entire NFL has just given on to, that if you've coached with Sean McVay or if Sean McVay likes you or anything to deal with Sean McVay, you're hired. That's it. No questions asked. That's all it is. No trick plays. Now, I'm not saying that you have to go wildcat every time. But Jerry Bur- uh, Burn, I think was it, I, called it out. The Bears tight end. And he said his passing touchdowns compared to the Los Angeles Rams, 1-0. to zero. Nick Foles passed uh, touchdown catches, receptions. To the Rams, 1-0. One of the most memorable plays is Nick Foles making the touchdown catch. Unless in the Super Bowl prior, we saw Tom Brady try and make a catch. We saw Nick Foles make a touchdown catch. We saw a few different plays that were like, huh. Because that's what you need at times. We saw the Saints one year against the Colts start the third quarter kickoff with an offside, uh, with an offside kickoff. And it's just like that changes it right then and there. There's just got to be a play where it's like, okay, this would make sense right about now. It just it bothers me because this is the Super Bowl, Nick. And this is it. This is the last game of the year. If you don't win, you come up empty. If you win, you get to raise the trophy. Why didn't they act like it? The only, the only time I saw a play... That was going to be uh, creative. It was I think it was like fourth and one or fourth and two, and the Rams put the the punt team on, and I, I think it was a delay of game or an offsides play. A, a delay of game was called, 
and it pushed them back to like fourth and sixth or fourth and seven. And all you see on the sidelines is they go to the uh, they go to the uh, sidelines, and it just shows the Rams special teams coach so mad and, and flipping out. And, and the entire time I'm watching this play, uh, when it's fourth and one, fourth and two, and I'm like, this is the perfect time for where their position is to do a fake punt. They can do a fake punt right here. I think even the Patriots are set up for them to do a fake punt, but this is the exact perfect timing for it. And sure enough, I mean, normally when you're a special teams coordinator and you have that punter on your team, you don't really care if it's going five yards back in in the wrong direction. Because he's going to kick it far enough that that doesn't matter. So he was flipping out because I think the Rams were going to go for it there. And they lost out on their opportunity. And he lost out on his possible bid moment of the game. That's it. That's their only sign of life. And then it was a sign that, oh, we didn't get to play off in time, so let's not do anything creative and innovative or anything that shows that we want to try and go further. We're going to play the same offense that's just not worked the entire game. We're going to play the same offense that doesn't feature Todd Gurley, C.J. Anderson. The Rams, they didn't play well. At the end, the, the the Patriots prepared much better. Their defense was totally in that game. And at the end of it all, the veteran quarterback came out ahead. The run game wasn't there at all for the Rams. But I do want to ask one other question outside of the Super Bowl game. And I did mention this to you earlier before the podcast. Todd Gurley, absolutely nowhere in the NFC Championship game. Absolutely nowhere in the Super Bowl. There's a big name free agent running back. And it's come to this point where do running backs truly matter in the game? Because we have moments that we see Saquon Barkley show up. And then we have moments where it's like David Johnson since then is was a big moment and then fell off with injuries. Kareem Hunt, we all remember, but then is immediately replaced and doesn't seem to have, and then we don't even seem to have a second image where the Chiefs weren't even missing Kareem Hunt. So, do running backs truly matter in the game of football, or are they easily replaceable in the end? Because CJ Anderson, for a while, was putting up better numbers than Todd Gurley in the playoffs. So, if you're looking at Le'Veon Bell and you're you're the Jets with free agent money, or you're the toll, or you're a team that's thinking about signing Le'Veon Bell, assuming that the Steelers don't try and create more havoc and drama. What's your take on that part? So to me, it's a little bit of both. I think they are easily replaceable. I mean, how many good young running backs do we see come up through college, get drafted in the fourth round, the fifth round? You know, sometimes you don't always get that first round running back, and sometimes you don't need to. Um, I think it's very easy to find a running back, but there are very few who can change a game like some can. Saquon Barkley, special running back. Melvin Gordon, very special. Kareem Hunt, also a special running back. So although they are easily replaceable, and I feel like this is a two running back league where you need more than one, I think you I think you are seeing the days of like Adrian Peterson being this elite 
running back, put the offense on my back. I think that's over. I think this is more of a passing league now where teams are going to pass more. So that's why you're not seeing a lot of running backs get many carries and stuff like that. But I still feel like you need a good, reliable running back if you still want to win two, again, because it is kind of a two running back league. But I think because the sport is shifting more to a passing league and you're getting all these high quality quarterbacks, you are seeing a little bit of a decrease about the importance of a running back. I still think you need an important running back, but they are easily replaceable as well. Would you go I mean, out? And- James Conner is a perfect example. Drafted what in the fourth, fifth round, and he's replaced arguably who used to be the best running back in the NFL, Le'Veon Bell. But would you go out and sign a Le'Veon Bell if you're if you're the Jets? We'll, we'll use that as the example. You know, honestly, I wouldn't because you can find cheaper running backs through the draft, or you can get guys like C.J. Anderson, who you can pair him up with another player. For, and you can get two players for the price of Le'Veon Bell. It really depends on what your team needs. I think a team that doesn't have a really good quarterback should go out there and get Le'Veon Bell. So if I'm the Jets, I think you should, but only because Sam Darnold is so young. And until Sam Darnold actually gets wide receivers and reliable receivers to throw to, because I feel like the Jets need to give him some help when it comes to the receiving game too, signing Le'Veon Bell would be a smart situation. It, to me, it really depends on what the team, team's offensive game plan is. If it's a team that doesn't have a lot of good receivers for a quarterback to throw to, then you're going to rely more heavily on the run game. But a team like the Rams, where they have Jared Goff, and although we wanted them to get the ball to Gurley, you can argue that the Rams don't even need Gurley sometimes because they have Goff and he's able to throw the ball to multiple receivers. Same thing for the Seattle Seahawks. Russell Wilson does it by himself. I mean, good credit to Carson. He had a great season for them. But they don't have a dynamic running back anymore. They just have a bunch of guys that can get the job done. When you have a quarterback like Wilson and a couple of receivers that you can throw to, it really just depends on the team's game plan and what they do on offense. It's very tough on the, you know, I, I as much as I really love the idea of the Jets going after Le'Veon Bell, and I think they should because I think. I think the Jets need to consider a running back and a veteran running back and a guy to take a lot of pressure off of Sam Darnold. I do also think that you can get all different options. Like you said through the draft, Saquon Barkley. Okay, yeah, not everybody has a second pick in the draft. Sure, you're right. Sony Michelle. Well, not everybody wants to use a first pick on a running back. All right, you're right. Uh, Nick Chubb. Okay, second round running back. Even free agency. Well, I mean, nobody wants to try and touch Kareem Hunt. I get that, but Leonard Fournette. Do you want to take the risk on him? He might be a little bit cheaper. So there there are plenty of running backs out there at the end of the day. And we also saw, if you're the Kansas City Chiefs, how they're able to turn anybody into a strong running back. It's just a matter of how the offensive form is around you. So by all means, anything can work in that, but I don't think a game like Todd Gurley possessed helps a guy like Le'Veon Bell at the end of the day, because a lot of times we see these guys disappear when it comes to the playoffs, because either they can't get to the playoffs healthy like to James Conner for Pittsburgh, he was falling off. A big reason why Pittsburgh probably missed the playoffs. Or even at the big moment games 
where they choose not to use a guy like Todd Gurley, where they choose not to use a guy like Marshawn Lynch, but no other offensive position, no other defensive position, except if your name is Malcolm Butler. Do you see this happening to? You don't see this happening if Tom Brady's going to take ha- miss half the snaps in the game. No. Because that's never happening. Or Julian Edelman's not going to play half the snaps. Because the offense and the rhythm isn't there for him. But for a running back, that makes total sense when we say that. It's beyond me on that one. NBA trade deadline ended today as we're recording the podcast on Thursday. Plenty of trades happened this week. One that didn't feature Anthony Davis. He was not part of any trades. Jose, are you surprised Anthony Davis was not traded? Let's start with that one. I'm not surprised at all. Um, It seems like the Pelicans were very angry um, about how all this went down. Um, You know that we all know that they accused the Lakers and LeBron James of tampering. Um, So to me... I think there was no way in hell that Anthony Davis was going to be a Laker. I think the Pelicans were going to hold it against the Lakers. And if anything, I think they would have, despite the Lakers, they probably would have traded him somewhere silly, um, like New York or Milwaukee. But nonetheless, I think the Pelicans, especially since Anthony Davis is under contract and he's not a free agent yet, so you're not letting him walk away for nothing just yet. I think the Pelicans want one more chance to try and convince him to stay. I think the Pelicans will use this offseason as a, hey, where's your head at? Do you still want out? We can still do something here in New Orleans. And then if he still says, no, I want out, I think you will see Anthony Davis get traded in the offseason. I've always felt that it's more likely he'll get traded during the offseason than now here at the deadline. I think things unfolded way too quickly. I think they happened way too fast in terms of him demanding a trade. Now, if this was him in the beginning of the season, I think maybe you see a trade get done. But since it happened all in the span of about two weeks, um, I think the Pelicans are still just very frustrated, and they know they have time to trade Anthony Davis. You know, the value is still going to be there. His value is not going to dip um, because he is a great player. So I think you will see him get moved in the offseason, but I'm not surprised he didn't get to move at the deadline. I think the Pelicans want one more chance to try and talk to him and convince him that he should stay. I don't think that's going to happen, though. That, I, I don't that think, he's going to stay? No, he's not going to stay. He's already oh, I don't think so either. I don't think so either, but yeah. I think the Pelicans want to try, at least. Well, I, I think I think an easy way to tell if they, if he's not going to stay is if he plays. The rest well, of the but also, honestly, if he was a free agent this year, like this year, then yeah, I think he would have gotten traded by now. But since the Pelicans know they have some time, I think they will try. I'm not saying they're going to succeed because I don't even blame him for wanting out. But I think they, I, I think they will at least try and talk to him and be like, "Hey, any chance you would stay?" The answer is going to be no, and then I think he'll get traded. But I'm not surprised he didn't get traded today. No, I'm not surprised he didn't get traded today, only because I think there were only a couple true teams that were willing to make the trade, and that being the Lakers. I think you still didn't have the Celtics as part of that, and why not wait till the draft? I mean, the Knicks can float a trade offer to you right now for the number one pit possibility, but the Knicks' number one pit might not be the number one pit still if Anthony Davis is on the team for another three months. So I think it's mu- it makes much more sense for the Pelicans to hold on to Anthony Davis. I, I do agree with them. They-, they should have put a lot of their phone calls to voicemail the moment this came out because it's like, okay— we know we have to trade him within this year. 
but we're not going to trade him today. We're not going to trade him tomorrow because whatever the Lakers offer us, offer us right now, we can get later on. It's what are our other situations? What's the deal we want to get? And if all else fails, at the end of it all, if all else fails, we can always take the Lakers trade. And take him for everything. So I do. I don't think Anthony Davis ever was, had a shot at getting traded right now. But on the off side of it, team chemistry is always a bit thin. So Anthony Davis probably is not playing with the team the rest of the season. The team chemistry of the Pelicans are are completely destroyed right now. But Outside of that, I mean, the Lakers team chemistry has to be a little bit questionable right now. And even the Celtics, I mean, Jason Tatum's name has popped up a lot in these trade rumors with Anthony Davis come this offseason. So this is two main teams that we're hearing about. And I don't know if you heard the uh, the Pacers chants of the fans for the Lakers. But like when Brandon Ingram was taking free throws... And the fans are chanting, "LeBron's gonna trade you." And my my favorite was Javale McGee when he came up, and he and the fans chanted, "Not worth trading." <laughs> I mean, that was just that was just pure gold for a team that lost Victor Oladipo for this season, and still have the the will to go to a game, watch the Lakers and LeBron James get handed the worst loss of his career, and come out with both of those which should be trademarked by the rest of the NBA fans the moment the Lakers go anywhere on the road. I think for that alone, the Pacers deserve a playoff spot. The fans certainly should be there for almost every game. Like, I, I want the fans' chance. That's that's it. Like They they can't just do this for the Lakers. they got to come out there for every team and find something. Because this is just pure gold. But how much does this affect chemistry in your eyes? For the Lakers or Celtics, or both? Well, so usually I say not too much because of the fact that, you know, it's a business and you know, you know, that people come and go, especially in sports, you know, teams are not, you know, they're not shy about trading away players. Um, But I will tell you, I think, and I'll start with the Celtics here. I don't think it affects them too much because, because, you know, there wasn't an ongoing conversation about, okay, this person's going to go, this person's going to go. I think Jason Tatum understands that he's the best player. You know, outside of Kyrie Irving, if I ask you, hey, who do you think's the best? You know, if you if you were in a trade and you could take one of Boston players, who would you take? I don't know who you would take, but I would start with Jason Tatum. I'd probably go Jason Tatum and then Jalen Brown outside of Kyrie Irving because I think that, that Jason Tatum is that good, and I think he's a future um, of the NBA in terms of star power, too, and everything. So... It's not surprising that Jason Tatum's name comes up. And a while ago, way back when, when they first talked about Anthony Davis possibly going to the Celtics, they asked Jason Tatum, oh, who would you trade? He said, hey, I, I trade me, t- I trade myself for Anthony Davis. He knows. He's not, he's, not, you know, he's not dumb. He understands that the best player has to go in those scenarios. And in this case, Jason Tatum is the best player slash prospect that the Pelicans could probably get back for um, you know, from the Celtics. But from a Lakers point of view, I think it's a lot worse in terms of the team chemistry. I mean, a lot of these guys are very young. And when you're very young, 
these sort of things can take more of a toll on you than when you're an experienced player who's been traded two or three times. I mean, think about it. LeBron comes to L.A. He's ready to play alongside these young kids. We're going to sign another free agent, and this team has all these role players, and they're going to mature into stars. Then all of a sudden, Anthony Davis becomes available. Hey, you're gone. You're gone. I'll trade you. I'll trade the guy who sells the popcorn. If, you know, everybody's on the table all of a sudden. And, you know, you want to say, yeah, it's a business. Remember, you know, it's all a business. You can get traded at any time. But when you go from guys like Lonzo Ball, who's being told that he's great and that he's the next Michael Jordan or that he's better than LeBron James from his dad and from every other coach that he's had to all of a sudden, you know, hey, your trade bait, that can take a toll for a lot of young players. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to defend the young players in this scenario. Again, you need to understand it's a business and that trades happen. But when you're on a team, and it's not like one or two guys are being offered. When the, almost the entire team is being offered for one other player, that would make me turn around and say, do you not want me here? I, I, don't, I don't understand. Can you not win with us? Like, what's wrong with us as a group that you need to give away all of us just for one player? So that's where it would bother me as a younger player that, you know, if it's one or two guys, I get it. But you're basically offering the entire starting five, basically saying, hey, get out of here. Because we know we can play better if you're not here. And to me, I think for the Lakers, it could take more of a toll on their team chemistry, especially when they're playing with a, a great player like LeBron James. Because then you start taking messages like, well, the, one of the greatest players on the planet doesn't think I'm worth having around for when we make our championship run in the future. You know, it's... Uh, I think that it's going to take a real toll on the Lakers. I think more than the Celtics. And I think for the Celtics, their future, their mindset is more life after Kyrie Irving because it doesn't sound like Kyrie Irving staying. And I think that's a bigger deal and more of a unity around that. But for this, uh, the Lakers... And you go into the offseason last year and it's like, hey, we just signed LeBron James. And now we have all these other guys that are mentoring us like Arajan Rondo. And then it's like you said, everyone's for uh, for sale. Other than the name LeBron James, everyone's for sale for Anthony Davis. So for a lot of these young guys, they went from, you know, we're, we, we got a real chance of winning this year just – in general, and make it to the playoffs with LeBron James to now it's like, this is just LeBron James' team. You know, we may have been here before him, but we are not going to be here after him. So, I do think that takes a toll. And for a lot of guys, you do say it's a business. But for a lot of young guys, they don't really necessarily understand the business as much. As far as they're, they're, they're just at the beginning stages. So I think it's a harder impact for younger guys than it is for more of the veteran role players who are more used to going to different teams, who have been, you know, we're not used to seeing the consistency of staying on one team for a long period of time anymore. I, but... Obviously, I don't want to talk about Ant Davis too much because I think we're going to be talking about him far more when we get to the trade deadline. Of uh, sorry, not trade. Um, the NBA draft and the end of the season when the playoffs are over, uh, because that's when I think his true value 
goes up. It's it's the NBA offseason. It is where the value of players skyrockets, especially this free agent market certainly can add a one-year contract of an Anthony Davis. There's so many things that of intangibles for uh, this offseason when it comes to players. And I think the Pelicans just know they were never going to make a trade this offseason, uh, this week with the Lakers or with any team for anything when they could get far more value in the future. We had a ton of trades go on. Uh, so first of all, I'm covering Tobias Harris is a new 76er. And that, I think, is one of the biggest trades. Uh, your thoughts on that one? To me, this is one of the biggest trades of the deadline, in my opinion. Um, to get a guy like Tobias Harris, who to me is very underrated to begin with, and you add him to a team like the 76ers, who already have a lot of firepower with Embiid, Simmons, and Butler, to me, that's a very, very good trade. Um, you know, you pick up Harris as an experience, and that's, that's a great, you know, big four. And if you add that to JJ Redick, that's a good starting five that can hang with Toronto Raptors. It could hang with the Boston Celtics. So to me, I think the 76ers took a giant step forward into, you know, trying to make a statement and, and proving that they can contend in the Eastern Conference play, you know, in the, in the playoffs when it's all said and done. You know, they want to take advantage and try and bring these guys in. Also, one thing that I loved about the trade, too, two things, is that one, it gets them a guy like Tobias Harris, who I think will resign with the 76ers when it's all said and done. He's not going to get a crazy contract elsewhere. That way, in case Jimmy Butler does walk away, at least you can, you know, shift your focus to bringing back Harris because Simmons and Bede and Harris is still a nice little trio to have around as well, too. And two, the second part I like about that trade, too, is they got Boban, the seven-foot-tall man. I mean, you have Embiid and Boban on the same team. Boban can make a lot of good players look uh, you know, foolish when he comes off the bench. So to me, it's a good trade all around for the 76ers. I think it really elevates them in the, in the conversation um, on who's ready to take the crown in the East. You know, first thoughts when he got traded? Does that mean he can get into the All-Star game? Because, damn, he should replace a lot of the players in the Eastern Conference. Uh, this was huge because I think not only does it add this bid four concept that it's like the Warriors of the Eastern Conference was the, the first moments that we saw from this trade. I think it almost put every other team into, oh, we got to do something now. Because the Butts add. Nikolai uh, Mirat from the Pelicans. And the Raptors added Mark Gasol. Small upgrades. I don't think as big as Tobias Harris. But I don't think those teams really go the extra mile until the 76ers make that trade. Because this happened a couple of days before. Th- this This is game-changing because... I think the entire Eastern Conference has changed on that move. And now we're already hearing talks about the 76ers trying to work out a way to sign both Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris long-term to make this team a four-headed monster for the future. So I love the trade that they made. Uh, by all means, go for it. You, you are at the biggest point of 
the 76ers process, where it should no longer be considered a process. It should be, we are in it to win. We are soaring for an NBA championship, and we have the players to do so. And that, that is a huge move by the 76ers at the end of the day. They add what should be an all-star, which should automatically replace a lot of the guys on that all-star team, which I am looking forward to when we do our all-star draft. We do have to flip a coin to see which one of us will represent the LeBron James or Giannis side. Uh, I'm hoping for the LeBron James side. <laughs> uh, but we'll, we'll see how that one goes. Uh, but no, th- this was a great big first move by the 76ers. Obviously, so many other big trades. Uh, we'll start with, we'll combine it, Butts and Raptors. Uh, on the two trades that we just spoke about, which one was a bigger deal in your eyes? Well, to me, I think it's the Raptors. I mean, let's not forget, Marcus Gasol is one of the better, you know, the centers that the game has seen in a while. I feel like he's, you know, kind of fallen from grace for the past couple of years because the competition's got better. And also, just the Grizzlies have fallen off a little bit as a team, um, especially since Fisdale got fired. Um, and I feel like Gasol didn't get a lot of love under the Fisdale tenure um, because a lot of plays were were kind of catered to Michael Conley. Um, so, but Gasol is still one of the best, you know, one of the better defensive players, plus also offensive players as well, too. And you add him to a team like the Raptors. I mean, you're talking about a starting five that includes Kyle Lowry, Kawhi Leonard, Serge Ibaka, and Mark Gasol. I mean, they had Jordan Valanciunas before. So, you know, Valanciunas is a good center, but you pick up someone like Gasol, it is an upgrade over Valanciunas. And... You know, with Gasol, again, another good defender, you add that to a team who's already great defensively with Kawhi Leonard and Serge Ibaka, I mean, that, that's a team that can suffocate you on defense. So I really like the move for the Raptors. I feel like it was a good move to kind of prep them uh, as they try and continue to have the best record in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, I'll take the, I'll take the opposite side of it, so we'll cover both ends. Uh, so I'm going to say Milwaukee. Yeah, on just the fact of I'm a big fan of height, at the end of the day. And any chance you can add a big man like Miritich, who's also a jump shooter. And when you consider the fact that Giannis is a guy that really t- controls the paint. He's going to be able to kick it out to the guys that can shoot. What's worked so far? Well, Burke Lopez has been a center. But he's not a center that stays in the paint. He's not a center that goes anywhere low to the basket. And this season, you know, he's not having his greatest of years. He's averaging only 12 points a game, and that's his lowest of his career. So adding another center that can shoot at times, a little bit more to spread options, a little bit more of a jump shooter as well. I I can't see anything to go wrong. And, you know, I do question at times uh, Eric Bledsoe's health. Chris Middleton is another guy that has had issues staying healthy. He's much better at uh, after playing a full season last season. But there there always are those uh, questionable marks. When you can add another guy that can be a starting center at times, 
as a replacement, whether it be for Brooke Lopez or whether you need like Giannis to move to a small forward position. It, it adds a lot of different room. You can control the rebounding game. You add another jump shooter that's a big man. There's nothing wrong with that at the end of the day. So I really like that. On top of that, though, Milwaukee is currently the number one team in the entire NBA as far as record-wise. And when you can add more players to your team, that's always a good thing at the end of the day. Another trade that I thought was kind of surprising to see, but Markel Fultz, who, I mean, 2017 first pick in the draft, is going from the 76ers to the Orlando Magic for Jonathan Simmons, a Thunder first, and what we can assume is a Cavaliers second because it would be between either the Cavaliers, the Orlando Magic, and the Houston Rockets, and it's the most favorable pick of those bunch. And so, you know, Cleveland, uh, obviously. So, 76ers love their pits. They're going to get two of them. But are you surprised to see Martel Fultz already gone from the 76ers? It's only been a year and a half since his draft, and he hasn't really played much for the team. Yeah, I'm really surprised. I mean, I, I think the, the 76ers here are giving up way too quickly um, on Markel Fultz. I mean, it's been a rocky start so far for Fultz off to his career in Philadelphia. He had all those weird issues about the nerves in his shoulders and all those weird injuries to start the year. But this is a guy that never really got a chance, in my opinion, um, to show what he's got. And I feel like he kind of fell out of favor, especially when they traded for Jimmy Butler. I mean, why would you trade for Jimmy Butler if you had a rising star, supposedly, and Markel Fultz. Um, I'm not saying that Markel Fultz isn't, you know, part of the blame here on why maybe the 76ers are moving on from him, but I do think the 76ers um, are giving up just a little bit too easily on Markel Fultz here. Um, and you know, you know, give the 76ers credit. They had some, you know, they're playing well. Um, they drafted Embiid, which was a smart move. They drafted Simmons, but the 76ers have had a lot of picks that just haven't panned out. I mean, Nerlens Noel. Didn't last long for the 76ers. Jaleel Okafor didn't last long. So, and now Markel Fultz is going to be another ex-76er. Um, again, I think Markel Fultz will, at some point, establish himself as a decent NBA player. But the 76ers, you know, in hindsight, they haven't done a great job with picking in the first round and, and trying to develop these guys. Well, it's tough to... You, you need a very good rookie coach that, that can develop rookies. And I think that's very tough in the NBA. Uh, frankly, because a lot of times these guys don't spend many years in college. And the best guys yeah. to develop them are, are the college coaches. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things where in the NFL, you don't need to be a head coach that develops rookies necessarily. You, you have to develop a quarterback. But for... All NFL players, they're coming in with three or four years of college football experience. Some don't need it, like Trevor Lawrence or Clemson. He doesn't need that many years for him to be the first pick in the draft when he becomes NFL eligible for the draft. But the MLB, you have the minor league baseball. No one has to develop... A Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper was going to be Bryce Harper from when he was 16 years old, but 
before he was smashing in the MLB, he was playing time in the minor leagues. And you're developing his game a little bit on that. You're spending time doing that with many minor league stars. But in the NBA, there's not that. There's one year for a lot of those guys, even if they do get hurt plenty of times in college basketball, they don't even play and they just go straight to the draft. Kyrie Irving was a perfect example of that. I think Kyrie Irving played eight games with Duke before being the number one pick in the draft. So there's there's not always that consistency of that minor league for college basketball. So I don't. It's very tough to see pl- young players develop or have that development system around them. They they rely on teammates. They rely on just playing and practicing. I think that's where your development comes. But it, as far as like a coach at times, I don't see it as much there. One last trade I want to get into, and that's because of John Wall will miss at least the next year with a left Achilles surgery. I mean, this is uh, this could be turning out to be the worst signing in the NBA is John Wall's match contract. Because I think he spent more time injured and missing games than he has played for the Wizards in his career at this point. I, it is a, I, I think it would be a very close over-under if you had to give me which one is the injured time and which one is the playing time? I, I don't know if I'd be able to tell the difference. Uh, but Washington did trade Otto Porter to Chicago in exchange for Bobby Portis and Jabari Parker and a protected 2023 20, second round pick. But that doesn't matter. Uh, the, the main part is Porter, who obviously is having an off season this year, but it will be a big name for Chicago for the next few years. But do you feel like this trade happens because they find out about John Wall's injury? I mean, I think so. I mean, I think if if you're the Wizards, John Wall's going to be out for a while, right? There's no, there's no sugarcoating it. I mean, and if you have an opportunity to get some, some decent players back for um, Otto Porter... And this ties into what we were talking about earlier in our podcast earlier in the year about should the Wizards take the rebuild route um, and, and deal tra- away John, yeah, and yeah. trade John Wall. Um, they didn't, and now they're stuck in a situation where John Wall is hurt. But maybe the Wizards are looking at well, maybe we can rebuild while Wall is out, and then when Wall comes back, he can give us anything that he has left in the tank. And I think it starts with guys like Bradley Beal and Otto Porter. Um, I think the Wizards are starting to pull the trigger on that move. But is it, it's clearly too little too late. Yeah, it's, it's too little too late, but this is an example of the Wizards trying to salvage what they can. Um, and give them credit. At least they're trying, but, you know, it, it's a very hard decision to, to move on from a franchise player like John Wall. Um, you know, you, I know he is often injured, but you also couldn't predict that he was going to have such a massive injury as of late. You couldn't predict John Wall was going to get injured? No, I mean, but you don't know how serious the injury was going to be. So I don't blame the Wizards for not trading him earlier. Um, but the Wizards got to find some way to try and retool. That way, if John Wall does come back and give you anything, uh, you can ch- just, you know, try, try to turn the ship um, and try and get better. I mean, we're looking at a, you know, it's funny, going into the trade deadline today, a lot of Eastern Conference teams made trades, and it's not a coincidence. LeBron is out of the East. All these teams 
are making moves because they're trying to go for it. The Wizards need to get on that same page too. So whatever they can do, try and retool and get back into contention here, now is the time to strike. I'm looking at it now, and I'm actually surprised he played four years without being injured. Uh, 32, 41, four years where he played 77 to 82 games, 49 in 2012, and then mid-60s in his first two seasons. But obviously the 41 and 32 stand out the most, which are the last two years. You can combine that and get less than how many games he played in 2016. But no one's taking on the contract that he has at this point. He should have been traded before he was extended. This is sometimes the issue. We we fall in love with the players that we have. And we don't look further into the future. I I think the Wizards fell in love with Otto Porter, with John Wall, with Bradley Beal. And I'm not saying they're not good players. I'm just saying if you surround yourself with just believing in-house is your best route, that's not going to work. The best players may not be already where they... The best people for your jobs in your positions will not always be there. And for the Wizards, they're not at this point because one is going to be out another year and the other one got shipped off. And now it's left with Bradley Beal and I'm sure he'll be next to go. It's... Of course he had to get traded. He's... John Wall's contract's going up to like forty million next season, and he's he might not even play a single game at the end of the day. Yeah, but the best thing you can do here, if you're the Wizards, is go out there again, trade Porter, try and shop Bradley Beal during the off season, and just retool this roster. And anything you can get out of John Wall, fantastic. If you can move John Wall once he comes back and proves he's healthy, um, I think there will be plenty of takers still. So. The good news is that this is not over for the Wizards. They can still make this work in some way. They just have to pull the right strings. Although, I feel like trading Porter for Portis and Jabari Parker isn't exactly the right step in the right direction, in my opinion. But we'll see how the Wizards go. And last one we're going to talk about. We saved it. Porzingis is no wonder in Nick. <laughs> oh, boy. This one's interesting. <laughs> we, we've had a lot of time to think about this. You, you so, know what I take, You know what amazed me about this, though, Nick? Is how fast it happened. I was at work, and I get a notification saying, Porzingis meets with team. Team feels like he wants to be traded. He wants out of New York. Two hours later, the guy gets traded. Anthony Davis demanded to be traded, and we're gonna, he's not going to get traded until like seven months from now. I mean, the rate in which they traded Porzingis was insane. <laughs> What top player of a team? Like what happened? <laughs> like seriously? But like I wouldn't. This was not like a, a team. This had to be like a hostage negotiation. <laughs> but what star team comes out with this report and within like two hours later it's done? That's it. It's over. The trade's made. Like it was nothing. He must have had some serious nudes of James Dolan or something. Otherwise, the, the, I, I, can't, the, I can't explain it. Had to be clear blackmail on this. <laughs> something. 
I, I think he walked in and it's like, you want to get rid of one of the final pieces that Phil Jackson got, uh, put into this building? It, it had to be something like crazy, but... All right, so Porzingis, Courtney Lee, uh, uh, terrible contracts. Tim Hardaway are going to Dallas. I, I would say Wesley Matthews, but he's already off the team. So it's DeAndre Jordan who should also be off the team, but not yet. And Dennis Smith Jr. and two future first-round picks. But what this deal clearly does is it opens up all the cap space for the New York Knicks. All right. On the Mavericks side, do you like the trade? For the Mavericks side, I do. I mean, they got rid of... Uh, I mean, this is a team that's trying to make the playoffs, obviously. It's a very, very competitive um, Western Conference. We all know that. Luka Doncic is playing amazing basketball right now. Dennis Smith Jr. was very disgruntled. Um, and he, you know, and it just it seemed like it wasn't going to work with Smith and Doncic. And I feel like if you're the Mavericks, you made the right choice by giving away Smith. Because if Smith can't get on board and agree to play with Luka... You, you could have had one of the best backcourts in the game with Dennis Smith Jr. and Luka Doncic, but if Smith's going to want to be a ball hog and complain about not getting a ball, then I think it's the right move to move on from him. But even without the Porzingis part, if you're the Mavericks, you're trying to make a playoff push. Tim Hardaway Jr. was one of the very few bright spots for the Knicks this year. Yes, they gave him an outrageous contract when they signed him, but he was playing really good basketball this year, Nick. And I feel like bringing him in, is definitely an upgrade over Wesley Matthews, and it's definitely an upgrade over DeAndre Jordan. And I feel like adding guys like Courtney Lee and and Tim Hardaway Jr. helps the Mavericks try and make that playoff push to try and secure a spot in the Western Conference side of the playoffs this year. Now, from a second point, with the Porzingis factor, it's an amazing move because if Porzingis can come back healthy, and this is an if because ACL injuries in basketball are very serious, and we don't know if players are going to be the same after they tear the ACL. But Porzingis is back, or will be back eventually. And just think about think about the tandem of Dunsick and Porzingis when they're both on the floor fully healthy. That's a duo that can be really, really good, um, especially when it comes to team chemistry. They're both from the same area, more or less, in Europe. Um, and, you know, Nowitzki's on this team. And even if Dirk Nowitzki you know, decides to retire, we all know Dirk is going to be around with the Mavericks doing something with their front office. So he's going to be a great, you know, tool for Dunsick and Porzingis to use. I like this trade a lot for Dallas. I feel like they are going to make a playoff push this year. And if it doesn't work, then they let the contract expire with Hardaway and Lee. But to me, what's awesome too is that you pick up a guy like Porzingis that when he comes back, this can be a dangerous duo with Dunsick and Porzingis. Yeah, I like this move at the end of the day for the Mavericks. At the, you traded away Dennis, and, and as much as I was big on Dennis Smith last season, I, like you said, it wasn't working with how the team was going this season. Uh, Matthews and DeAndre Jordan are just throwaway players, as we saw that it's already have gotten rid of Matthews, uh, and DeAndre Jordan was on the final year of his contract. And you're giving up two first-round pits that are long in the future. Long in the future that if Christoph Sporzingis is the player that he was on the Knicks, he's still extremely young. Luka is extremely young. 
that if this Dallas Mavericks team becomes a full force threat, those pits are not even going to matter and are not going to be lottery pits to begin with. So you weren't giving up too much at the end of the day. I think on the, on the Mavericks side, it's great. And I think we also saw the Mavericks. I think what? They traded Harrison Barnes also. So they're, they're opening up opportunities for themselves. And I think they can uh, sign in a, even with taking on like a Tim Hardaway contract, you, you still have the opportunities to sign Porzingis and sign other players around your team to make yourself a much better team. So I don't, I, I don't see any issue with this trade I, in hurting Dallas. Now, here's the question. Did you like the trade by the Knits? Because this is questionable because it has all the risk. If Porzingis turns out to be the player he was or better in the future, this is going to look like a bad trade. And it's especially going to look like a bad trade if the Knits cannot sign anybody, which they've had trouble doing so in the past. Wait, you mean no one wants to play in the world's famous arena? Their arena that attracts so many free agents to, to New York that attracted the likes of, I don't know, Amari Stoudemire? Honestly, Nick, I am so tired of the New York Knicks bullshit. And... I don't even know if I was allowed to curse right there. No, but we are. Okay, cool. Then, yeah, this is just pure bullshit. I mean, I kind of understand it, and I kind of don't. Porzingis coming off an ACL injury. We don't know if this guy's going to be the same again, right? So if you're in the Knicks, you shed yourself of that worry, right? Okay, Porzingis, we understand. You're frustrated. We might not win in the timeline that you're still here. Also, if you're in the Knicks, I don't know if you're going to be the same again. So we trade you away. It's still a dumb reason but I understand it from that point of view. Now let's flip it onto the side of the expiring contracts. Hey, if you're the Knicks, you got rid of Courtney Lee. Got Courtney Lee's got awful contract, right? There's still a couple of years left on that thing, I believe. You get rid of Tim Hardaway's contract, even though he was playing well for you. Still too much money. Never should have signed him in the first place when you did, but you had to make a move at that point, so you signed him. You know, now you trade him away. The, expi- the expiring contract, perfect. You already let go of Wesley Matthews. You bring in DeAndre Jordan, whose contract I believe expires this year, even if they leave him on the team. They cut NS Cantor earlier today, too. So if you're in the Knicks, you cleared a bunch of payroll. They're able to sign two max free agents this year. And they might have, let's say, it's safe to say the Knicks are going to have a top five pick in this year's draft. They might have the number one overall, but they have the top five. So you should be saying the Knicks might be in good, 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 you know, a good spot here. But I'm not saying that, Nick. Because what the Knicks did was give away a star player in Kristaps Porzingis for the hope, the hope that a free agent chooses dumb this year. Because I read somewhere that the Knicks believe that a close source says that Kevin Durant is interested in coming to New York. Why would Kevin Durant come to New York? Why would he choose the Knicks over the Golden State Warriors? Well... Some people say he doesn't want to take a pay cut anymore. He already won his championships. He wants to market himself. Well, guess what? There's another big city that could be in play for Kevin Durant. Their name? Los Angeles. And I'm not talking about the Lakers. I'm talking about the other team who, by trading Tobias Harris and Boban, they cleared a lot of cap space too. 
the Los Angeles Clippers are dangerously in play, just like the Knicks, to sign a lot of other free agents. And if you're a player, why would you choose the Knicks? If you're Kyrie Irving and you can go go to L.A. and play with LeBron or stay in Boston, why do you choose the Knicks? If you're Anthony Davis, why are you choosing the Knicks? I am so tired of this reason saying, well, yeah, it's the world-famous arena. People want to play here. The last big free agent that the Knicks signed was Amari Stoudemire in the summer of LeBron, where Knicks fans and the Knicks swore they were getting LeBron James. Did they get LeBron James? No. They got Amari Stoudemire. They also signed Carmelo Anthony to a contract. How'd that work out? The reasoning of, well, we play in the world's famous arena is pure bullshit. No one cares about that. No one is going to come to New York. I mean, am I crazy here, Nick? Or is there a reason why players are going to choose the New York Knicks? I think the Knicks are taking a huge, huge risk here in trading away Przingis in the hope that they can sign two guys. Yes, I think they're going to have a top draft pick. Whether it's the first one or one through five, I think they're going to get a solid player. There's a lot of good players that should declare for the draft this year. So the Knicks are starting on a good foot there by hanging on to that draft pick. And hopefully they hang on to it. Don't do something stupid like trade it to the Pelicans. Hang on to that draft pick. Build for the future. But if you're in the Knicks, hey, you might sign a free agent. You might sign two. But you might also sign none. And then having a hard time explaining to your fans why you came up empty by trying to throw all your eggs in one basket in free agency. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to look at the possibilities of players that are free agents, right? And there's a large, long list of them. Obviously, there's a lot of big names. Uh, if Tobias Harris and Jimmy Butler do wind up staying on the 76ers, that's two of them done. Uh, you have to assume that Clay Thompson or Kevin Durant are staying with the Dolan State Warriors. One of the two. It, basically, I'm looking at it and saying, can the Knicks land Kyrie Irving? Okay, maybe they can. Or he goes to the Lakers. Or he stays in Boston. Right, I think those are his three possibilities. I don't think Kawhi Leonard is ever considering the New York Knicks. So I'm looking at it as, maybe the Knicks land Kyrie Irving. Maybe the Knicks land Campbell Walker. Uh, maybe they'll re-sign DeAndre Jordan if they're doing that instead of going DeMarcus Cousins, which I think is a much better choice. But does Kevin Knotts and R.J. Barrett, Zion Williams, and a Kemba Walker mixed with like Chris Middleton beat the, beat the idea of a Porzingis on this team? No. You have to come up with one of the best players in this free agent market. Because if you don't, the the Knicks are nowhere again. Because the Knicks could be sitting with one of the top three pits in the draft and Kevin Knotts, but if they cannot sign anybody with that group, we're out, they're nowhere. Uh, they're, they're, their then new slogan should be the process worked in Philadelphia. It will work here too. That That's their slogan after that. Because if they cannot sign anybody, this trade was one of the worst moves the Knicks could do. Because you are risking it all on free agency. And there's no guarantees. Clearly there's no guarantees when we consider the NBA. And there's not 
and I'm not going to take a disrespect on loyalty, but team, players are quick to jump on other teams. And players are quicker to go back to the teams they're already on. We all thought Paul George was going to be a Laker. He stayed with the Thunder. We all think Kawhi Leonard is going to be a Twipper or a Laker. He may stay with the Raptors. We all think Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are going to be Knits. They may stay with their teams. There's no guarantees when it comes to free agency, especially if I can match your contract if you stay with us. If you stay with the Celtics, if you stay on the Warriors, you know, two teams that you're guaranteed to get to the finals pretty much. Or you could try and go in New York. And if you don't win, it's not going to be a fun year for you. Whereas you don't even have to do much on our teams. Hell, you can miss a lot of time. We'll still get there. Look, and this is the funniest part for me, is if you would tell me you trade and you get a ton of cap space, two draft pits, and Dennis Smith Juice, uh, Dennis Smith Jr., I normally would love that type of trade. But for some reason, I don't really like this trade. And I'm all about future when it comes to trading. It's because this trade relies too much on... Hypotheticals. In, in tangibles at the end yeah, of the day. You're, you're hoping Kyrie comes to New York. You're hoping Kevin Durant. I'm sorry. You can't hope. The last time you did this, you ended up coming up and signing Amari Stoudemire. That doesn't get it done. It doesn't. You can't run your team. You can't run an organization based off of hope. You already lost if you do that. And maybe you get lucky. Maybe you sign one of these guys. But what if you don't? And to me, I know a lot of people are going to be like, well, it's worth taking the risk. Is it? Because when you come up empty this summer, then what? You tank again? Get another pick? I mean, to me, it's just, I mean, you could have had the top pick, which they probably will, and a healthy Przingis next year. And a rising star in Kevin Knox and Mitchell Robinson. But instead, you want to get greedy. You want to sell tickets. Right, because that's what this is really about too. You rather have the star players so you can sell out the Garden every night. When is winning going to become important again for the New York Knicks? Is my question. And when I say intangible, is also it's like if you have draft pits, okay, you can make the most out of draft pits. Regardless of their spots, you you're at least getting a player. If you have cap space, especially in a league. Where the cap just continues to grow, congratulations, you have nothing. That, that's the way I look at it. You can, you have the ability to throw money at anybody you want. That doesn't mean you're going to get the player you want. That means you could wind up with Kemba Walker at the end of the day. And I'm not taking anything against Kemba Walker. But I think everybody would prefer Kyrie Irving. And you could want Kevin Durant. But you could easily wind up with Chris Middleton. And again, I love Chris Middleton. 
but he isn't Kevin Durant. And the team of those two plus Kevin Knotts plus a top pick just not equal. It equals probably a playoff team in the Eastern Conference, maybe a playoff team. But it's certainly not a team going far. Hell, it would have even took if they got a pit this year. Would have been nice. That that would have been something. Just in case the Knits finish in a bottom-out spot, they can try and trade up. Maybe they can trade up and get the second pick. And it's like, okay, we can't get Zion, but at least we got R.J. Barrett. And all he had to give up was the first-round pick of the Dallas Mavericks this year in a lotto. Or maybe the lotto pick of the Mavericks turns out to be the ninth pick in the draft. And it's like, okay... Well, the Knicks have Kevin Knotts and now two pits in the top ten, including one in the top three. This could be a great move. And now all of a sudden, when you're trying to make a sell to Kyrie Irving or Kevin Durant, it's you're the leader. We have three top young stars on this team with you. That could be the future. And we, if you sign, you can pitch who you also want on your team. The only thing the Knicks can offer is if you sign, you can pitch player at... Of the other one. Because you convince that player Etz to come. And we have the money to bring him here. That's what the Knicks can offer. But can you get the first player to come? And I don't know if they can. Because they certainly have it in the past. Whether their name was Phil Jackson leading the squad. Or Carmel Anthony leading the squad. Now it's just Kevin Knotts. And a top pick in the draft. And that's not much. That's a, that's a top player coming to a team of rookies and nothing else. All right. I want to kick it to a little bit of MLB because I think we need a little bit of MLB here. And JT Romuto finally is traded. So he goes to division rival the Philadelphia Phillies. And, and my first thought is, okay, wow. Because in that trade, they give up. Jorge Afalo, and Sito Sanchez. So let's start with, you know, the Marlins. Do you like this trade that the Marlins got on? I do. Um, I think it's a, it's a good step in the right direction. Obviously, the Marlins need a lot of work, and step one was trading JT Real Muto because, honestly, it was better to, to, to trade him before spring training started because they've been shopping him all winter. So it's a little awkward for me. I think the Marlins have made it known that they want to trade Real Muto. Um, so to have him off the team is a good thing for the Marlins. Uh, they get back a Flalo who could be a good catcher in this game. You know, he never really he never really blossomed into what the Phillies wanted him to be. Um, but he's still good and young enough to try and turn it around and then try and be something for the Marlins. Because right now you can argue that he can start the year in the major leagues and still develop in the majors, he doesn't necessarily need to go to the minors. So the Marlins got themselves a great major league-ready catcher who could still develop um, in the major leagues as well, too. And they get a very, very good right-handed pitching prospect in Sixto Sanchez. I mean, this was the Phillies' top prospect here. And if you're trading a guy like Real, like Real Mudo, who has two years of control— this is what you should be demanding from teams, right? They're top prospects, and the Phillies did that. So a good job. I mean, the Marlins did that. So a good job by the Marlins getting a good return here um, for a guy who still has two years of control. I love this trade on the Marlins side because, you know, we didn't really see the Marlins getting 
top, top prospects when it came to trading away Jim Paulo Stanton, when it came to trading away Christian Yelich, uh, even Dee Gordon. We, we saw them get Batstall and Castro. They got Sidstow Sanchez. Jorge Afar is a very good catcher. You know, 262, 10 home runs, 108 games, 2018. He's only 25 years old, and he could be the catcher of the future. All right. But Sanchez is the real thing. 20-year-old, and he's probably going to be their number one prospect for the rest of his time until he makes it to the majors. And this kid is going to make it to the majors. And he could be the ace of the Marlins in the future. I, I, I believe in the potential of Sanchez by far. And I think he's got an awesome name. On top of that. And, and, and when, when players have an awesome name, you just know they're going far. But also, I mean, you want to talk about pitching-wise. I mean, this is a team that barely had any pitching in their minor league system. And now you go back to a trade that they made for Giancarlo Stanton. With the Yankees, and you know they picked up a guy that you and I both know from our time with the Stanton Yankees when they got uh, Jorge Guzman, Sixto Sanchez, and Jorge Guzman sounds like a nice little one-two punch if it ever you know evolves into a, at a major league level. And I think it can be. I think uh, when I described Guzman, uh, I thought he was the best prospect we had saw in the New York Penn League in in the time that I covered. And we certainly had seen a, a lot of good prospects, a, a lot of first-round guys. But I think Guzman was the best player uh, as far as what he had in that level. Certainly, it's a lot to still have to get all the way to the majors. I think Sanchez easily will get up there very quickly. Uh, Guzman, I think, is going to be a little bit more of a challenge, but he is making it up uh, through the levels. But if you're the Marlins and you're able to get that, by all means, I, I think you downgrade, obviously, a catcher, but you upgrade in the future tremendously. And that's what you wanted at the end of the day. You wanted a game-changing minor lead player minimum when you were going to give up Real Muto. And even if you were going to give it up to your division rivals, you got a game-changing prospect in Sitzo Sanchez. So I think that's the perfect trade uh, for the Marlins to get. Uh, on the flip side for the Phillies. But and, also, Nick, sorry, I don't mean to cut no, you no, off. By but all means. The Marlins had one player in the MLB top 100 prospect list. You want to know what number he came in at? He was like 99, wasn't he? 99. Out of 100 different players, the Marlins had one guy, and he came in at 99. The Marlins need more players that are higher up on there. And it was a guy that hasn't even played minor league baseball yet. And Victor Mesa, Mesa, he is a guy that they just signed last year. So the Marlins need better players in their system, and getting Sanchez is a great first step. And on top of that, I think I, I'm not too sore, but I'm pretty sure uh, Sanchez has got to be ranked in the top 20. Well, he was the Phillies' top prospect, so I believe he probably should be. And if he's the Phillies' top prospect, on top of that, he's going to be the Marlins. So the, the Marlins just got their number one prospect on their team. 
because it's not going to be Mesa, 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 Mesa. Um, no, it's it's going to be Sanchez by far. But on the Phillies side, if you're if you're a Phillies fan and you watch it and you just trade your number one prospect away for a real Muto, what are you thinking? Well, I think Philly fans do have to be somewhat excited. I mean, believe it or not, catcher is a position where they've been lacking over the past couple of years. I mean, they haven't had a really uh, a big-time everyday catcher since the days of Carlos Ruiz. Um, and I do think Realmuto is a lot better than Ruiz, you know, by far in his prime. Um, you know, Realmuto is young. He can handle a pitching staff. Um, he's a good offensive catcher. Um, he's one of the top catchers offensively in the game um, he's one of those catchers that can play every single day and, and this is still a lineup that still needed some pop in their lineup right this is a team that was going after Machado they were going after Harper it seems like they've fallen out of the race a little bit or maybe they make this trade and it helps Harper make up his mind maybe Harper now wants to go to the Phillies since they have someone like Real Mudo now too so if you're the fans you should be excited because this may persuade Harper to join the Phillies after all but also you get yourself a good catcher who can handle a good young pitching staff. Because after after Aaron Nola, this team is very young. There's still a lot of good young pitchers, starting pitchers. And when you have a lot of good young starting pitchers, it's important to have a really good catcher behind the plate. Real Mudo is that guy. And also, yeah, you gave away your number one prospect, but you didn't just give it away for a rental. You gave it away for a guy who has two years of control. So Real Mudo is going to be here. So if you're a Phillies fan, it's a good offensive upgrade. They haven't had a catcher in a while that can do this sort of thing since Ruiz, and you get him for two years. It fits the window in which they have other guys like McCutcheon and Segura. So the Phillies, who are trying to keep up with the rest of the division, and it's a good move because slowly and slowly, with all these moves being made, to me, in my opinion, the NL East is becoming one of the more tougher divisions now. Yeah, from what it used to be uh, outside of the Marlins, it's four very good teams. And I'm even saying that when the Nationals have no Bryce Harper anymore. And it's still four very good teams. Uh, For the Marlins, uh, I mean, obviously it's, you know, the one thing I think the Marlins have to hope to God is they don't have another MVP on their hands walked away from the team. (laughs) Because you had Gentile standing that you traded away. Then you trade away Christian Yelich, and he wins the MVP. It's only fitting that this team makes it three years in a row of trading away the MVP. Uh, but Phillies had a top catcher. I think if I'm a Philly fan looking at this, you know this is a great upgrade to our team. Uh, we have the best catcher now in the MLB, but I think this can't be it. And this should further their push for a Machado or Harper or somebody else at this point. I, I do question the Andrew McCutcheon signing the most because when you look at it and say everything else they've done, they should have gone a little bit more with the money and the years and instead of Andrew McCutcheon, hold a Bryce Harper. I think that would have been the better long-term move than to go a Harper route, and now you have Harper and McCutcheon uh, both as in your outfield. But this shouldn't be the the last move. 
the, the Philly fans have been expecting a big name signing. The Phillies have promised a big name signing. Uh, they they have made the trades this offseason. They showed another trade right now. I, I You have to do one more move. And you have to do one final push in order to get this in order to really get your team to believe. Because last season we saw the Phillies finally playing well and they weren't able to get the true fan attendance. This this offseason they've made some big moves, they've made some big trades, but I really still need to see one more move to put this team over the edge because I think the Mets are still there, the Nationals are there, the Braves you shouldn't count out at all with especially all their prospects they have and their talent. Uh, the Phillies had to make some big moves in order to be key players this offseason. They've made a lot, I, but they have to make another one because this isn't enough. It, it looks like a very good team, and it's going to be a, very, a much better defensive team than what they've had in the past, but they still have to do a little bit more to put their team over the top. The MLB also... Is coming out with a few different changes that they're trying to consider. And one of them, as always, seems to be getting rid of the designated hitter in the National uh Getting rid of the uh, pitcher's hitting and adding a designated hitter into the National League. So, it would change all of baseball, I think, uh, in a tremendous way of viewing it as it's the only time where pitchers have to hit. Should the National League convert to the designated hitter? Jose, are you there? Yeah, sorry about that. We, um, I was going to say, well, you know uh, how we feel about the National League. Uh, me and you are both National League guys. Um, but the more I think about it, and it kind of bothers me to say this, I think it might be the right move to adapt the DH into the National League. And don't get me wrong. I'm a baseball purist. I love the National League style of play. I love the strategy. I love that double switching is a risky move. Um, I love that, you know, making you know making that decision to send up which, which pinch hitter and in what spot, you know, when's the right time to do so. And, you know, there's, there's just a lot of, you know, there's a lot of thoughts that go into every move when you're playing in a National League ballpark um, because you have that pitcher spot. Um, so certainly all that is very fun, but if you're a pitcher and, you know, a lot of guys don't want to bunt anymore cause you know, they, they're in risk of getting hit with their fingers being damaged by the baseball. But also I feel like more and more teams are stacking their teams offensively and more and more teams are picking up guys that can play a lot of different positions and a lot of versatile where the DH just makes sense for a lot of these guys to get more playing time too. I mean, it's kind of funny. You and I are both Met fans. You and I don't like the DH necessarily in the National League, but wouldn't you say a team like the Mets could benefit from having a designated hitter? The, especially since, like, you know, we don't we don't really have the guys like David Ortiz anymore that are just a DH. I like how the Yankees use their DH, how they use it, how they rotate the DH, and how some guys get a half day off. They don't necessarily want to put Aaron Judge in the field all the time. They don't want to put Stan in the field all the time. So they have the option to DH him and give him like basically a half day where he's only batting. I feel like a lot of teams, and a lot of National League teams, can definitely benefit from having that extra hitter, 
So although I don't like the DH, I think there's a lot of reasons why it makes sense. And I think it may not be this year, but I think eventually we will see a universal DH. I think eventually we will see it. Um, This was more of an idea by the MLB Players Union. And bad contracts equal designated hitter. You look at a lot of the large contracts in the MLB. Why why do no teams do these 10-year contracts anymore? Because we defended this 10-year contract theory with, oh, when he's in year 7, 8, 9, and 10, he'll just be a designated hitter. Because teams like Seattle, teams like the Yankees, teams like the Angels, we're just Texas giving away these contracts. To players, teams like the Tigers, he'll just be a designated hitter in seven, eight years, because we have that extra position. Bad contracts are formed because teams have that little luxury. That's why there's none really in the National League as much compared to the American League. I love. The fact that the National League is a more entertaining game because of the fact that it's a managerial game. Like you said, double switches, pinch hitters. How? When do you have to take out your starting pitcher in the game? At what point? There, there is much more of a thinking process in the National League. There's a movie where it's a little bid leader and a 12-year-old's the manager of the Twins. And he says it. It's the American League that's a designated hitter. It's not that challenging. And that movie's in the 1990s. It's still pretty relevant today. You can pretty much manage a team knowing just the designated hitter. You don't have much to do on the sidelines. I'm not going to support it. I think on a player's standpoint, I can support it. I think offensively, the game can help through it. But we already saw phenomenal offensive numbers without a designated hitter in the National League. I think we'll miss out opportunities like Bartolo Colon. Can you imagine if there was a designated hitter and Bartolo Colon did not bat for the Mets? Which, I know, I'd be devastated. Which, just think about all the happiness Bartolo Colon gave us every time not that man standing up on the mount that man stood up at the plate that is what you had to see he was bid sexy at his finest moments when he was not on the mound but he had a bat in his hand and a helmet falling off his head we we wouldn't have that if we had a designated hitter and i would take him being the designated hitter every night over whatever type of designator you can give me. Because that's an entertaining game. That doesn't make sense to me long term. I don't think it's the right move to go. Will the MLB concede at some point? Sure. But then do not tell me about time on a baseball game. Because runs are going to make your game much longer. At the end of the day. Sure you may not have a double switch. Sure you may keep your starting pitcher in a little bit longer. But. 
your 8-9 games are a lot longer than your 2-1 games. So if the MLB is trying to get the pace of play down to under three hours, you're not going to do that when you have another MLB hitter hitting in the game. Uh, but one thing I did thought that was interesting. Now, I don't think this would ever be allowed. But the MLB Player Union also suggested this one. Uh, a certain number of wins a team must win in a few year spans. Otherwise, they lose draft pins. So I was trying to think of something in my head for this to be relevant. And the best I could come up with is a minimum consideration of this is, we'll say, 320 wins in five years. If you can't pull off 320 wins in the span of five years, you lose, we'll assume, your first round pitch. And it goes from your first round pitch to the consolation pitch after the first round. Just the same way teams using that first round pitch that they lose when they sign an MLB player after a qualifying offer. Should the MLB consider this? Now, I don't think they ever will because teams love to lose and rebuild in that standpoint than sign players. But it does create an interesting scenario. Now, doing the math, it's only 64 wins a year in the five-year span. So the Miami Marlins best beware. But for the rest of the MLB, it's pretty simple to hit at the end of the day. Even winning just 60 games in those first five years, you, you'd have to get to like 80. And be in five, uh, four years, you'd have to get to like 80. Or 77. or No, you'd have to get to 81 and 81 to surpass 320. So if you go 64 years and 81 and 81, 500 baseball, the fifth year, you still get over that 320 threshold. What's your thought on that one, at least? Honestly, I, I, think, it's, I think it's really lame. I mean, No, you don't like it. No, I mean, like, you're basically telling teams how to operate their, you know, you can't operate your team now. I mean, I get it. You don't want teams losing on purpose. Totally understand. But I feel like, I don't, I don't know. Like, you can't just penalize a team for wanting to rebuild themselves. You know, people, that's how people do it. I mean, there are plenty of teams who, who try and rebuild and lose on purpose who it doesn't work out for. You know, they're a team, you know, like, I, I don't know. Just to me, you can't tell teams, uh, you know, how to build their team. Because the reason why this bothers me is because the players' union is not looking out for the teams; they're looking out for the players in this scenario. And they're it tired, be. obviously. <sighs> but I mean, see. no, and, and it should be. But like, this is just the only reason they want this is because that way teams can still be able to sign players. And I don't know; it's just it's weird. The the players' union, yes, they should be fighting for the players first and for you know and foremost. That should be their top priority. But you can't just make decisions that are only going to benefit your players as well, too. Well, let's put it this way. On playing a little bit of devil's advocate. Are Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, Dallas Kaido, Craig Kimball, XYZ, and all these other free agents still free agents if the MLB has a wins requirement 
in a three-year span of 180 games. Yes? No? Because I don't think they're free agents still at that point. No, clearly they're not. And that, that's why it just bothers me because this is just an attempt to get guys like this signed faster. And I'm not a fan of forcing a team to go out there and sign players they don't necessarily need. But that's exactly what we're seeing in other sports. We're seeing that happen in the NBA. Where it's like, okay, give this guy $40 million a year. Who cares what he's worth? Give him $40 million a year. We're seeing that in the NBA. In the NFL, there are big contracts. And then we saw a player even hold out for a full season. In the MLB... Two of the biggest names in baseball, in Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, don't have a team. A former Cy Young in Dallas title doesn't have a team. An MVP in Bryce Harper doesn't have a team. The best relief pitcher in all of baseball for pretty much his entire career, and statistically, probably the best pitcher in, as a relief pitcher in all of baseball. When you take his numbers, he's better than every relief pitcher that's ever played. And Greg Kimball does not have a team. Yeah, because he's asking for six or seven years. Which is pretty much absurd for a relief pitcher. But, he should have a team. He should have an offer. The Red Sox who won a World Series with him are using Matt Barnes as their projected closer. Instead of Craig Kimball right now. Right, but what we don't know, though, is that if they've gotten smaller offers, just because they don't want to take, you know, just because they're not being offered that six, seven-year deal, doesn't mean that there aren't teams out there offering them two to three. Well, we know they're getting smaller offers. Manny Machado got an offer of, like, 175 from the White Sox. And there's no reason why that shouldn't be enough. I get you know, it. Like, like, like if someone's offering you 25 per, I'm not going to cry for you and be like, nope, you should be getting more. <laughs> I'm not saying that they, I'm not saying I'm a fan of the 10 years, 240 million, because there's never a time when I am. But I am a fan of like players having a team at this point. And when some of the best players in baseball don't have a team, that's not good for baseball. We're going into spring training almost. We're going to where pitchers and catchers meet. And you can make a better team with the free agents right now than some of the teams in the MLB. And I don't think that's right at the end of the day. I don't think that's ever good for baseball. I don't think there should be a scenario where Manny Machado and Bryce Harper are in the month of February of their free agency and they don't have a team. There's nothing good about that. There's nothing exciting about that. The MLB offseason is supposed to be exciting. We've seen a decent amount of trades. We're talking about a big trade with Remuto. We've got a month before the season, month plus before the season begins. And yet we still have some of the best players in all of baseball not with the team. Our conversations about Machado and Harper shouldn't be 
about where are they going to sign HB? Should will they hit thirty or forty home runs this year? Playing in stadium ets with their new team. No, I, I I think the player union should have a point in this because if teams are not going to sign these players, what's left? Because there should be no reason why half these guys are still free agents. I mean, you know, I don't know. It's it's it's, it's a hard puzzle to solve. I really thought people were going to be saving for this offseason, and that's why guys weren't getting signed in years past. But it's one of those things where a lot of teams, either they don't have the money for it, they don't have the fit. I mean, honestly, how many teams can you count can, you know, have a fit for Bryce Harper? A lot of teams have already stacked outfields. And I understand that Harper would be an upgrade on most teams. But even the Washington Nationals might be actually better off without Bryce Harper. I'm not saying the Washington Nationals or the New York Yankees, but I'm saying that you can find a list of teams that can get an upgrade over Bryce Harper for what he's worth. But can they afford the contract that he's asking for? Yes. Yes, they can. So the Marlins can afford Bryce Harper? Yes, they can. Really? Yes. See, but would it make sense for the Marlins to go get him then? No. But would it See, make that's what I'm saying. For a lot of teams, they could afford him. It doesn't make any sense. But would it make sense if they've got a, a minimum wins requirement and they're in year four of their minimum wins requirement? Sure. But then again, you're forcing teams to make moves they don't need to make. What, and to me, that's a problem. What creates the fan base, though? The Marlins trading off everybody, or the Marlins well, adding players? The Marlins need a fresh start to begin with. I mean, they well, can't, they couldn't keep going on what they had. Let's put this debate on a f- simple one. Give me a team that's not the Marlins. <laughs> All right. Uh, I mean, I can't. I mean, they're just, they're just so they're vulnerable. <laughs> <laughs> they're an easy pick. I get yeah. that. What about Texas? Texas has money. Texas has a terrible team at times. They can certainly use the upgrade as players. They certainly need the pitching. A Dallas title fits perfect. Sure, but the, but the signing Keigel and Harper automatically make them playoff contenders again. It gives them a no, fighting there's chance. More, there's more work that would have to be done. Yes, there's more work that has to be done. But if you add both of those players, are you off on the right foot? Of Possibly. course you are. It's a possibility. Yeah. Of course you are. You're already better than like your counterpart Angels. You're already better than Seattle. There are two teams in your division. You have to win those division games. Outside of the AL Central, the only other teams are the Yankees and Rays. You have to pass two of the four or five teams, and you're in the playoffs. You don't have to do much if you're Texas. That's my point, though. It makes it for a far more exciting offseason when we know teams can be involved. Minnesota should be involved in a lot of this talk. Cleveland seems to be taking more of a bat step. They should be involved more. The problem is half the teams that are winning right now are more concerned about the players that they have to re-sign three years from now when arbitration ends. It doesn't add up to the right scenarios. Uh, so, 
Frank Robinson uh, passed away today, and uh, I have to mention him because of the importance that he played in MLB. Not uh, passed away at 83 years old. A MVP in both the National League and the American League. I think he's the only player to do so for that. And he also was the first African-American manager. And, you know, the, the incredible career at the end of the day. Just a lot of people forget just how good he was. But 500-plus home runs in his career. 586. Near 600. A whole different club. The only player to win MVPs in both leads. A 14-time All-Star. Incredible player. And he also won the Triple Crown when he won the MVP. 49 home runs, 122 RBIs, 122 runs stored. And a 316 average in 1966. Uh, it's hard to have a better indivi- uh, hard to have a better season than that, uh, but certainly a huge impact he had on the MLB throughout his career and afterwards, uh, and certainly will be missed. So, uh, it's Frank Robinson passed away, 83 years old. In our dude Dunson beard back. I'm going to 2010. It's the only thing I could find in uh, Beardback. Was the New Orleans Saints winning 31-17 to over the Indianapolis Colts for the Super Bowl. Drew Brees was named MVP for that. And our Dude of the Week is going to be Julian Edelman for being the Super Bowl MVP. The only thing I am going to say is, no, he is not a Hall of Famer. And no... He should not be considered a Hall of Famer. I don't know where that conversation was coming up from. But Julian Alderman is our dude of the week. 10 catches, 141 yards in the Super Bowl. Tom Brady only threw for like 262 yards. So he had, he had over half of Brady's entire yards for the game. And as always, with a dude of the week... We need a dunce of the week. Jose, who is our dunce of the week? It's been an interesting week. Um, there was a lot of candidates. Even LeVar Ball resurfaced this week. Uh, the minute he opened his mouth, I was like, hey, you're still around. Oh, man, you're in contention. But I had to give it to one person, or really two people, I would say, Travis Scott and Maroon 5. How dare you? How dare you show the clip of Spongebob from the Sweet Victory Bubble Bowl episode and not use the song to its entirety. I don't want to see a seven second clip. I want to see all of it. Show me Spongebob singing Sweet Victory. It's the only song that mattered. It was a terrible halftime show. Adam Levine, put your shirt back on. No one wants to see any of that. We wanted Spongebob. We were duped. We were fooled. We were bamboozled, Nick. So Travis Scott and Maroon 5, you're my dunce of the week. I would have been fine if they sung the song. SpongeBob didn't have to sing for two minutes. But Sweet Victory had to be sung. I wanted wanted SpongeBob. (laughs) 
SpongeBob or nothing. After that halftime performance, SpongeBob should just take over. The entire episode of Bandits should be the entire next year's Super Bowl halftime show. See, I would have opted for that because that's about a 20-minute episode right there. I mean, I would have taken us through the half. Yeah. And that is still my favorite SpongeBob episode of all time. Damn right. Oh, yeah. You, you cannot go wrong. For, for those that watched Super Bowl and had no idea what Bandits were and just was wondering why this yellow sponge and squid were on the screen for a moment before it, we went into, what, sicko mode? Is it? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Uh, oh, look at you getting the young references. Yeah, look at me go. I'm hip. Yeah. It's the greatest SpongeBob episode of all time. Uh, Bandits. That'll take every halftime show over what we had to deal with. And and it was the first year I was hyped for a halftime show because I knew SpongeBob was going to be in it. That's the worst part. Like, that was the only time. It's like Bruno Mars has killed it during halftime shows, but I was never hyped to see Bruno Mars. Um, but that was it. I knew SpongeBob was going to be in it. But, I might change my pick now that you're saying that Bruno Mars killed it. I mean, eh, I'll let it slide for now. Compared to what we just got, Bruno Mars killed it. Alright, man, Let, if let's you say call, so. Let's call it what it is. I, I mean, at least if he just sung something, it was going to be better than whatever occurred at that halftime show this year. Agreed. Uh, so, again, thank you so much for listening to Sarasso and the Beard. Once again, I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And you've been listening to Sarasso and the Beard podcast, episode 39. And enjoy the rest of your night. And I hope you enjoyed all of the trades that occurred in the NBA. Our next podcast episode, we're talking a lot about the NBA All-Star Game. We're going to give our own draft picks for that. We'll see which one of us represents Team LeBron and Team Giannis as well. Uh, unfortunately, Tobias Harris won't be part of that All-Star Game representing for the Eastern Conference. Let's try and make that happen, folks. Uh, but until then... Thank you so much for listening to the Sarasota Beard Podcast, episode 39.